You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn once again in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. I talked recently about the importance of singing in heaven and why we do that here on earth. And, you know, earlier in our service, we had you broken up into groups, and each group is talking about Jesus and talking about his word, and uh, different things are being said. And so you, you have to listen carefully and closely to hear what one individual is saying, but then you miss maybe what someone else is saying. And the singing part brings us all together in a unified voice, saying the exact same thing. And um, so there's different purposes uh, within that, but it's great to see um, us being able to worship together this morning and to hear all of our voices in unity giving honor and glory uh, to Jesus, who is the risen Lamb. In Revelation chapter 6, we're going to read once again from the text this morning. We've done so already this morning, but I just once again to set the stage. Uh, and again, I told you today that we're uh, more introducing chapter 6 uh, versus actually getting into the text. We'll do that more uh, next week. I want to make sure that our our mindset is right as we approach chapter 6. For those that have been with us over the past couple of weeks, uh, chapter 4, we really saw the, uh, the aspects of God the Father being highlighted as our creator and why God deserves our worship uh, because of the fact that he has created all things. Uh, he demands that worship because he's holy, he sustains his creation. And then last week we saw from chapter 5, the emphasis being placed on God the Son, who is our Redeemer. Uh, we see Jesus being presented as the Lamb who was slain. Uh, this idea of a lamb who is alive, uh, but gives off the appearance of being dead. And so we've got that resurrected lamb in heaven being worshipped uh, for the fact that he has redeemed mankind. He has redeemed people from all tribe, nation, and tongue uh, to worship uh, together in heaven. And so uh, we've seen that over the past couple of weeks. We saw how Jesus is presented in chapter 5 as the only worthy part of creation who can open that scroll. So we're introduced to a scroll that has seals that ultimately communicates the, the future of God's plans, um, but that scroll remains hidden and it remains uh, bound until someone who is worthy can open it. And so there's a search that takes place in heaven and ultimately Jesus comes forth as that one who is worthy. Um, and it reminds us, and we talked about the fact, it reminds us that all other religions teach that man must become worthy before God, right? That we're to work ourselves towards a state of worthiness. Whereas in heaven, we're, we're shown and seen that there is no one who is worthy besides Jesus, that Jesus is the only worthy man. And so it's a reminder to us of how our religion is much different than those in the world. Uh, we talked about worshiping Jesus as the executor of history, that he begins to seize that scroll as the one who is worthy to open it. He's the worthy victor. He wins that victory over sin and death. And we talked about the lamb analogy that's seen throughout uh, Scripture that finds its climax in the book of Revelation. We see hints of the lamb in Genesis when sacrifices are introduced and even Abraham looking for that lamb uh, when he's told to uh, offer his son. And uh, we see the lamb pop up again at Passover and Exodus as the children of Israel begin to slaughter the lamb. Uh, we see John the Baptist calling out to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Um, and so we see that, that analogy find its climax in the book of Revelation. We saw also that Jesus is the unrivaled Son of God, that he possesses the divinity of God the Father equally, 
that he's given the same um, glory and the same worship that we see in chapter 4 at the end of chapter 5, and it reminds us that we have a responsibility to give glory to Jesus by resisting the urge to worship anything else that this world has to offer. And so we talked about even things like marriage and uh, jobs that we have and money, that these are all tools that God gives to us to worship him. Um, I was even thinking in terms this weekend, we took our seniors at Trinity away on a leadership retreat up at the Ocoee River, and uh, just thinking in terms of the fact that at, as a high school senior, it's very easy to worship sports. It's very easy to think that this is all that matters, and that if I pour everything into this, I can get a scholarship and eventually make a living off of doing this. And uh, just thinking in terms of how something as simple as football has been given to us as a tool to worship Jesus. Um, that it's, a, it's an instrument, it's a thing that we can use. In fact, me being able to coach it gave me the opportunity to be with these guys this weekend. We talked about leadership. We talked about man's tendency to be passive in his leadership as a curse, as a result of the curse that we find in Genesis. And so being able to coach football gives me a tool uh, to connect these guys to Jesus. And so everything in life is, is an opportunity for us to worship him. Uh, God gives us so many gifts and tools to do so. And uh, chapter 5 certainly reminds us that it's Jesus who is to be worshipped rather than any of those gifts that he has given to us. And so that brings us to chapter 6 today. Let's begin reading in verse 1. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth, and as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? If you want to, you can follow along with us in our notes. Uh, They're available on our Google Drive folder that you can access uh, through our bulletin. I'm going to go ahead and see if we can get those up on the screen uh, so that you can follow along today as well. Talking about the worthy Lamb today that opens the scroll, and we're going to see that there's great purpose 
in how Jesus opens that scroll. Summary sentence for today, the coming events of history, as challenging and difficult as they may be, are completely under the control of Jesus who initiates and empowers them to happen. The coming events of history, as challenging and difficult as they may be, are completely under the control of Jesus who initiates and empowers them to happen. For our kids, everything that happens in the future is planned by Jesus. So we're going to start to see the unfolding of some events that probably take place in the future. If they've already taken place in the past, they will take place probably in the future to a greater extent. And we're going to see that those events that are to take place, as challenging and as difficult as they may be, specifically for for the church, we can take comfort and encouragement from the fact that they all fall under the control of Jesus, that Jesus initiates their happening, and he empowers those that need the power to make them happen. So we'll unpack that truth uh, today as we get into um, the text some. Uh, ultimately, we're going to see that God's sovereignty is key to understanding chapter 6 and the, and the, the following chapters. God's sovereignty, and, and I don't want to mistakenly think that we all understand what we mean by that word sovereignty. We're talking about God being in control, possessing all power needed to accomplish all that he desires to do, right? So God is sovereign, meaning that he possesses all authority and all power to accomplish his plans. The good thing is that we find out from Scripture that our sovereign God who possesses all power and all control is a good God, a loving God with intentional purposes for how to use his control, right? So we're talking about God's sovereignty, and that's a key component to understanding Revelation chapter 6 and the following chapters um, and how they fit into God's plan. Now, for those that are visiting today or those that haven't been with us from the beginning of uh, Revelation, which I guess we started in, in January. So um, we've already been in it for a while now. And so just to kind of recap real quick, our approach to Revelation, and I want to apply this to Revelation chapter 6. Remember, we are approaching this from an idealistic standpoint, meaning we are seeing Revelation as a symbolic presentation of events that will occur from the apostolic church to the return of Christ, meaning we're talking about events that take place from the book of Acts when when the church really begins after Pentecost all the way till Jesus comes back. But recapitulation is present, meaning that the events are not necessarily laid out in order and they repeat themselves throughout history. And so we're even going to see, I think, some, uh, some repackaging of the seals in the form of the trumpet judgments, and the bold judgments. There's some similarities in those judgments, and there's some intensification that takes place. And so there's some deeper understanding that comes from the trumpets being blown and the bowls being poured out uh, in addition to the seals being broken. But I think we're going to see, and I want us to see it through this lens, of events that will occur from the time Jesus left and the church began at Pentecost to Jesus coming back once again, a a repackaging of these events throughout history. So we can see some of these things happening already, and they will probably most likely happen all the way until Jesus comes back, intensifying greater until he comes back. All right, so just to kind of remind you of of how we're approaching it, and then I want to read this, and there's no way you're going to be able to see that, but it's it's in the notes so that you can reference it back. So I'm going to read it to you. 
But this is the comment that David Platt made when he was teaching through this at his church at Brook Hills. He was teaching through the book of Revelation from the same perspective. And so this is what he had to say when their church got to chapter 6. He says, up to this point, we've already seen seven letters. Now today we're seeing seven seals. Next week we're going to read about seven trumpets, and then we're going to read about seven bowls, and so on and so on through the end of the book. It seems that these series of sevens are arranged in cycles more than they are arranged around chronology. The arrangement of Revelation seems cyclical, not chronological, meaning that Revelation is not intended to be read as a day-by-day account of how the kingdom of God unfolds in the world, with one thing happening after another chronologically. If you try to read chapter 6 through 22 as a chronological order of events, it's going to get really confusing. And chapters 6 and 7 are a good example of this. Chapter 6 ends with total devastation across the earth in the sixth seal. And then when you start chapter 7, we see a vision where everything is great on the earth. Then at the end of chapter 7, we see a portrait of eternity in heaven for all believers in the consummation of the kingdom. But when we get to chapter 8 next week, it's going to look like we're starting all over again with some of the stuff we saw in chapter 6. So think cycles that repeat and reinforce one another. Each cycle, whether it's seven seals or seven trumpets or seven bowls, describes similar themes and even similar events from different perspectives and in different ways. They build on each other, they intensify, they include different details, they emphasize different aspects based on different angles, together giving us a complete picture. Okay, so I don't want us to view this as though chapter 6 happens and then chapter 7 happens and then chapter 8 happens leading up to the end of Revelation. That's not how we're approaching it. It's okay if you personally have studied Revelation and believe that's how the book unfolds, that it unfolds chronologically. That's okay. But we had to make a decision on how to approach this. Otherwise, we would get so bogged down in looking at every possible perspective and view. And so based on my studies, I've landed on this being uh, what seems to be the most consistent with what Scripture reveals in my studies and in guys that I respect greatly. And so that's why we're approaching it the way that we are, that it's kind of a cycle that we're working through with these uh, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bold judgments. Now, I told you that I wanted to approach this cautiously today to set the stage for next week. And I want to kind of use this analogy. I think we need to approach Revelation like the game of Jeopardy appreciating the answers that are given while trying to determine the questions that they actually answer. Okay, let me say that again. We need to approach Revelation like the game of Jeopardy, appreciating the answers given while trying to determine the questions they actually answer. Now, let me give you an example of how we do that. All right, here's an example of what you might would see in a Jeopardy game. Question, uh, or not really a question, the answer, he was the first man to walk on the moon. So you're given that bit of information, right? He was the first man to walk on the moon. And then the goal is to try to figure out, well, what, what is that the answer to? What question is asked that I would then give that answer to? And what would be the correct Jeopardy answer or the correct Jeopardy question to this situation? Everybody's like, who was the first man to walk on the moon? Who is Neil Armstrong, right? Like that's what this content is answering, okay? But to use how we typically approach Revelation, this is what we would typically do with this type of information. We would say, I wonder if it was a full moon or a half moon or what color the moon was when he walked on it. I wonder, I wonder, what, wonder what phase the moon was in when he walked on the moon. 
right? I wonder how long it took him to get to the moon, right? Like, like did, it, did, it, did he do it in a day? Did it, did, it, did it do it in several days? Like, how long did it actually take him to get to the moon? How did he get to the moon? Like, what, what ship did he take to get to the moon? Oftentimes, we start to ask questions based on the content that's been given to us in Revelation. And we have to keep in mind that Revelation is a revealing of information that God wants us to know about him and his plan. So he is giving us answers in anticipation of questions that we may need to ask. And so as we look at Revelation, we could easily come to chapter 6 and start questioning and saying, who's the, who's the, the guy on the red horse? Who's the guy on the black horse? And we can start to ask a bunch of questions that I'm just going to be honest with you, we don't have answers to. And we could spend weeks and months and years trying to develop the most educated answer to some of these questions. But at the end of the day, I think we're missing the point of the content. We've been given answers, and we need to make sure that we're asking the right questions so that we can really dive into the answers that have been given to us. Okay, so as we come to chapter 6, I want to make sure that we're asking the right questions so that we can really gain what God wants us to get from the content in chapter 6. So introducing chapter 6, I'm going to give you eight points today real fast. We're not going to delve too deeply into them because, again, next week we're going to come back to chapter 6 and really work through it more from a textual standpoint. But first off, number one, answering the question of when is not the priority. Answering the question of when is not the priority. So as we approach chapter 6, we need to be content and okay with the fact that we are not going to know explicitly when these events take place. For our kids, when Jesus is coming is not something we need to know. I know that because Jesus doesn't tell us, right? It's important when Jesus is coming, and Jesus says, the Father knows when, when he's sending me. But he says, it's not for you to know. And he says, it's not, you're not going to know. That's going to remain veiled until it happens. Answering the question of when is not the priority. And that's the case anytime timing seems to come up with Jesus when it comes to end time events. There's no real hint of a timetable when reading about the seals here in chapter 6. You don't, you don't get a hint here of when this is supposed to take place. Now, if you approach this through maybe kind of the opposite way that we're approaching it, the futuristic perspective um, that all of this stuff takes place in the future, approaching it from the rapture perspective, just to kind of remind you, then chapter 6 happens and the church isn't supposed to be here. Okay, Those that hold to a rapture view see chapter 6 unfolding in a way typically, now not everyone, but typically that view holds to Chapter 6 happening after the rapture. And so the church is safe in heaven and they don't endure the things that take place in chapter 6. Okay? But there's no real hint of a timetable here, right? There's nothing that's stated in the text that tells us when this is supposed to happen. There's also no indication about the church being here or not here for this. It's not really dealt with, it's not really touched on here in chapter 6. So we do need to ask the right questions in order to discover the provided answers and really understand why Jesus has included what he has included here in chapter 6. I want to reference a couple of uh, sections where the disciples were asking those when questions and Jesus corrected them. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, it says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? 
and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will will, uh, be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus doesn't really answer their questions about when, right? He doesn't doesn't delve into that. He doesn't try to give them a whole lot of information like they're asking for. Instead, he talks about things that are going to happen that aren't really when the end is. Right? And if you think about it, it's very similar to some of the things that we see with the horsemen. Right? He describes wars. He describes conquest. He describes famines, sickness. These are things that have, that have always been going on, right? And they seem to continue to intensify as we get closer to the end. But certainly, we've seen from the letters to the seven churches, there was some really difficult stuff that those people were going through, that those Christians were enduring. Right? They were being thrown into prison. They were being killed for their faith. They were, they were poor on the outside. Jesus talks about them being rich spiritually, but they were lacking things. They were lacking food and water and clothing. So they certainly understood what famine looked like. And Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you when. I'm just going to tell you that these things are signs that we're getting closer. But instead of telling them when, he challenges them to endure to the end, to be faithful with the gospel, to share it with others and to remain true until that time does come. You go to Acts chapter 1, and this pops up again after the resurrection. Now maybe they can get their their questions answered now that Jesus has died and come back from the dead. It says in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus draws their attention back to evangelism when they're trying to talk about the timing of Jesus coming back and when the end happens and when he, when he does all the things that he's been promising to do. Jesus says, it's not for you to know, which encourages me to be okay with not knowing. Right? Like, I don't think that, that it's now my task to really dig in deep to try to figure out the timing of this. I don't think Jesus was, was leaving it locked up for only the serious Bible studiers. I think he's saying, it's not there. Like, you're not going to know. It's meant to be veiled. And you may have come up with some good reasons this morning in your discussion groups as to why that's a good thing. I certainly think it, it provides a level of urgency for us not to know. Right? Can you imagine witnessing to somebody and sharing the gospel with somebody and it being explicitly revealed to us in Scripture the day that Jesus is coming back? It would be hard to call someone to repentance knowing you've actually got 30 years before this really has to happen. Right? But there's some goodness to the fact that God withholds that. 
He keeps that information veiled to us for a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons that we could talk about, a lot of reasons that we probably couldn't even think of as to why that's a good thing for us. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't entertain the idea here of the disciples wanting to know the timing of things. Instead, he draws their attention to other and more important things. He tells them, this is going to remain veiled. This isn't something that's going to, to become known to you. Going back to that passage in uh, Matthew chapter 24, um, in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus wants us to understand why things will happen the way that they will and how we should respond when they do. Let me say that again. Jesus wants us to understand why things will happen the way that they will and how we should respond when they do. So he's not concerned about us asking when these things will happen. Instead, the correct questions that we should be asking as we read through Revelation is, why are these happening? Why are these things happening the way that they are? And what do I need to do as they unfold this way? That's how he kind of lays it out, especially in Matthew chapter 24. And he gives us the answers to those questions. Why are things happening the way that they are? And how should we respond when they do? First of all, in verse 13 of Matthew 24, he says, I'm telling you these things because I want you to be fortified in your endurance. Look what he says, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. He says, I want you to understand some of these things. Don't, don't, don't panic when you see wars and famines and rumors of wars and sickness and persecution. Don't panic when you see the church undergoing persecution and saints being killed for their faith. Don't panic and think that something has gone wrong. He says, these things are going to happen and you need to endure to the end. He does it to inspire evangelism, right? We've talked about Acts 1.8 and Matthew 24.14. He says, in light of what I'm telling you, embrace the gospel and embrace your role to spread the gospel. And then in verse 42 of Matthew 24, he challenges them to stay awake in the midst of this delay where he hasn't returned yet. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There's a level of urgency that Jesus wants to keep pressing upon us by us not knowing. So answering the question of when is not the priority, and it's not going to be our priority as we approach Revelation. Trying to figure out when some of these things happen. If it's not, if it's not really dealt with in the text, then we're going to steer clear of spending too much time trying to address it ourselves because I think Jesus specifically wants to keep it veiled for various reasons. Number two, while we may not have all the answers, there's no reason to despair. So we, we, we shouldn't get that information up front and think, well, what's the point in studying this if we're not going to figure out when all this stuff happens? There's no reason to despair just because we don't have the answer to that question. Again, we have answers to some really important questions. We need to figure out which questions these answers go to because that is going to give us what we need according to what Jesus has determined for us. And we can take encouragement from the fact that God knows all the answers. God knows who the, 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 the rider on the red horse is supposed to represent. We may not, and that's okay. 
but God knows who that represents. God knows who's on the, on the, um, the white horse. And we're going to find next week, because we'll talk about it a little bit, there's some really great people that believe it's Jesus. And there's some really great people that think it's the anti-Jesus, right? And so there's a lot of confusion as to who's riding on that white horse in chapter 6, okay? The good thing is that God knows. And God knows the answers, and he's chosen to keep some things off limits for good reasons. God has revealed the answers we do need. Think about the things that we do know and that we're going to solidify our understanding with as we work through Revelation. We know how all this, this, this ends, right? We know how the whole thing ends. We know that Jesus wins. We know that he includes believers in that victory. We know that he fixes everything forever. It's hard, it's hard to do this, but imagine if we didn't have that content, right? We're sitting around thinking, man, after reading chapter six, I'd love to know who that, that rider on that white horse is. I don't know that your life would be that much different if you did, right? Like if I told you who it was, I don't know how much your life would change, but I can guarantee you that your life is different because we know that Jesus wins in the end and that believers are included in that. That is our hope as believers, that Jesus is coming back and that he's victorious over death and sin and Satan and that we're getting new bodies that are free from all of those things that he includes us in that victory and that he's going to fix everything, that he's going to restore creation, new heavens, new earth for all eternity. And what a great hope that, to know that that never ends, right? That he doesn't fix it for a little bit and then we, we fall back into this same situation, right? Like we don't have to worry that we get into year three of eternity and somebody messes up and eats a piece of fruit and now we're all out of the garden again. Right? Like we've been told that Jesus wins and he gets it fixed. He gets all the glory for it, but he includes us in it. And it's a, it's a permanent situation. Like that is such helpful content that far supersedes knowing who the guy on the red horse is. Right? We can be grateful and thankful and not despair and not be frustrated that we don't have all the answers because the answers that we do have are the most important answers that we need as we seek to endure through some of these things that are coming. And I think Jesus in his goodness reminds us and warns us about things that are coming so we can be prepared for them. Number three, the lamb who is Jesus is the greatest, most powerful being we will encounter in Revelation. I know we've said that before, but I don't think we can say it enough, especially for our kids, because I remember going through Revelation with my dad and being scared to death of the four horsemen. Right? And so before we look at chapter 6 and the four horsemen, we need to remember that Jesus is greater than any of the horsemen. That Jesus controls the horsemen. That their power, their authority, and any of their activity comes from Jesus. He has to permit it. He has to allow it. He's the greatest figure. He's the greatest being that we will encounter in Revelation. He's at the center of the throne in chapter 5, and he's at the center of initiation in chapter 6. He's the one who takes the scroll, he's the one who breaks it, and he is the one who gives out the power for these things to happen. He alone is worthy to open the scroll, he's the one who initiates the events. All authority demonstrated in the seals finds its source in Christ. So there's a lot of authority. There's a lot of activity in chapter 6. There's a lot of power in chapter 6. All comes from Jesus. It's all permitted 
by Jesus. You'll remember in Matthew 28, 18, before Jesus gives the great commission, he gives the great uh, encouragement as to why the great commission can happen. He says, uh, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, who gave it to him? His father, right? So, so God the Father gives all authority to Jesus, not some authority, not the good authority, not thinking in terms of a dualistic approach where there's light and darkness, and so Jesus has all the good light authority and Satan has all the dark authority. That's not how it is, right? All authority belongs to Jesus. Satan and his demons, any power, any authority they have has been given to them by Jesus, right? Satan's a created being. If these horsemen are real people, they're created beings. They get their life from Jesus. They're sustained daily by Jesus. And that'll blow your mind a little bit if you think about the fact that Satan's existence is contingent upon Jesus just like ours is. We read about Jesus in Colossians and how he sustains all of creation. And Satan's a part of the creation. Satan can't exist without Jesus. Jesus sustains him every day that he exists. And one day he will bring judgment upon that portion of his creation. Jesus is the greatest being that we encounter in Revelation. He has all authority according to Scripture. We've seen that some in Revelation, highlights of his authority. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of all kings on earth. All authority belongs to him, right? Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 and 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the, until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a the rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Jesus says, I'm the one who has the ability to give out authority because I have all of it. And how did I get it? My Father gave it to me. So when we read about authority in chapter 6, it's not authority that's separate from Jesus's. Jesus has given that authority to this being or this individual or whoever this thing represents in chapter 6. All authority belongs to him. Scripture is very clear about that. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, the only one that really is identified to us is which writer? Which writer do we not really have to speculate about? Right, the one on the pale horse. Who's its rider? Death and Hades followed him. Right, death and Hades. And who has the keys to death and Hades? Jesus. We've already said that, right? So the scariest one that we can identify, because maybe Jesus is the one on the white horse. We don't know. Maybe it's the Antichrist. But we're told the one on the pale horse is death, and Hades comes after him. And that shouldn't scare us in the least because our Jesus has the keys to both of those places, right? Jesus is the greatest being in Revelation, and there's no reason for us to fear as Christians. All authority comes from him. Which leads us to number four. Coming events are completely under the control and guidance of the Lamb because he has all the authority. He has all the power. For kids, Jesus controls the future. So there's nothing to be fearful of. There's nothing to be anxious about. And that's, that's true for way in the future whenever Jesus comes back, and that's true for tomorrow too, right? That's true for way in the future, if that's how long it is for when Jesus comes back and some of these things happen. But it's also true for tomorrow. 
It's true for someone like Tom and Denise who wake up the next day and find that the four cars that were in their, in their uh, driveway are gone now because of a tree. It's true for the individual who wakes up the next morning and their job is gone that they've been working at for the past 20 years. Jesus is in control of the future and nothing happens without his permission because all authority to make decisions and to do anything belongs to him. When and how the events happened are determined by the Lamb's design. And that starts right off the bat in Revelation 6.1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. Nobody's telling Jesus to open this. Nobody's forcing Jesus to open this. This is he on his, in, on his own prerogative doing this. Jesus remains in control. Jesus opens this scroll and initiates these events happening. When and how they happen are determined by him. Nothing that occurs in Revelation comes as a surprise to him. It all happens as a result of his authority. And from his authority, we see authority, permission, and allowance being given by him to other characters. The four horsemen possess nothing without Christ. Look at some of the the terms or some of the wordage here in just chapter 6. We're going to see this to be true in the coming chapters as well. But in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2... And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. Crown means authority and power. Who's been the only one giving out crowns in the book of Revelation? Jesus. He's the only one that's been issuing crowns. There's no reason to think that anyone else is issuing a crown here. But on chance that someone is giving this crown... The only reason that person could give this crown to this writer is because Jesus has allowed it, because all authority belongs to him. This crown is given to this writer, and that authority is in submission to Jesus. In verse 4, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. This, horse, this, this rider doesn't show up on a red horse and throw Jesus' plans up. doesn't mess him up here, right? Like he doesn't show up and start taking peace from the earth and allowing people to slay one another. He doesn't wield his own sword, right? This is given to him. The sword is given to him, and he is permitted to do this. Who's permitting him to do it? The one with all authority. That's implied in the text. So we've got content here. Right, And so the question is, is, is when we're going through difficult times, times that would seemingly make us doubt the presence of God, where is Jesus in this? If Jesus is in control, where is he? Where is the authority to this? Where is the authority for this to be happening in my life coming from? What's well, coming from Jesus? Jesus is permitting and allowing whatever it is that we're going through. And the hope and encouragement is that he has good purposes tied to it. Right? That's where the promise in Romans 8 comes into play here. Jesus says, church, you're going to go through persecution. You're going to go through famine. You're going to go through difficulty, whether that's here in chapter 6 or whether it's just the promise is given in the seven church letters. He says, you're going to go through difficult times. It's going to be for good purposes. If you'll endure to the end, it's going to be for good purposes. All authority comes from Jesus. All the characters demonstrating authority in chapter 6 get their authority and their permission from Jesus. Number five. The lamb intentionally restrains what happens during the end. 
The lamb intentionally restrains what happens during the end. For our kids, Jesus always controls what happens. Here we can also see where Jesus comes in and in his all authority state limits what can happen during the end times. Look at the economic collapse that seemingly takes place uh, with the one on the black horse. It says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the, le- the third living creature say, come, and I looked and behold a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, now we know, we know where the four living creatures are, right? Like we've already seen how heaven's kind of laid out. Who's in the middle of the four living creatures? Jesus, right? So we can only assume the voice is Jesus's that's coming forth from this area. Says a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. We'll talk more about this, but there's some economic implications here. But the authority is still restrained. Jesus says, this is what it will be. This is what it will look like. And this is where it will not extend to. You're not going to touch the oil or the wine. And you're not going to go above these prices. The prices are set by me because I possess all authority in this situation. So don't think for a second that this guy comes riding in on a black horse and starts to dictate prices and start to dictate economics to us as though the authority comes from him. This is Jesus permitting these things to happen and restraining the things that are allowed to happen. We go down into the the text. The blood shed for the martyrs will not be too little or too much. When he opens that fifth seal, there's souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are persecuted Christians that have been killed for their faith. They cry out, how long until you do something about this, Jesus? They're given a white robe. They're told to rest a little longer. Why? Because there's still supposed to be some more of them. Jesus says, it's not done yet. I realize there's a bunch of you up here that have been killed for your faith. There's going to be some more that are coming. We haven't reached the number that I've set yet. We can look at that and say, well, why would God even allow one to be killed? So we can look at it from the perspective and say, how could a good God let his children be killed? Or we can look at it and say, what a good God who won't allow any more than what he has planned for to happen. He's not going to let any less happen. He's not going to let any more happen. He has a specific reason. We know, we know from history that when the church is persecuted, the church explodes, right? God uses the death of saints to grow his church. So we can answer this question with one simple answer that why does God allow Christians to die for their faith? Because it leads to more people becoming Christians. If that's the only answer, that's a pretty good answer. I think there's a, probably a lot of other answers that are, that are hidden in the mysteries of God's purposes that he hasn't told us. But just from looking at history, we know that when Christians die for their faith, more people want to become Christians because of it. Because they die going to their graves saying, I have a friend who comes back from the dead and brings me back from the dead as well one day. I don't have to fear death. So Jesus says, I hear you. I'm going to avenge this. Like, don't think for a second that this is going to go unnoticed, but there's still some more of you that are due here. And when they all get here, that's when I will avenge your blood. Jesus is completely in control, and he restrains what happens. He's promised us as the church that we'll suffer. 
and that we will die potentially for our faith. Matthew 24, that, that other passage that we've been referencing. Remember, the disciples are asking the wrong question. When, when, when? And Jesus has said this, instead tells them, what, what, what? Here is what will happen. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. They will put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for, not, for my name's sake. Then the end will come. He says, persecution's in your future. It's been promised. Number six, the lamb does not forget the church during the execution of his end-time plans. What a comfort and encouragement to know that he doesn't forget about the church as he's unfolding his plans. As he's breaking these seals, the church remains at the forefront of his attention. For our kids, Jesus never forgets the church. The lamb controls the process of the events and demonstrates concern for his people in that control. He controls the process of the events and demonstrates concern for his people in that control. He has purpose in the timing of his plans. He's going to bring about the appropriate punishment for that bloodshed, as we've already said, which leads us to number seven. The lamb does not forget those who failed to repent and submit to him. He's going to answer the prayers of the saints, and he's going to bring appropriate judgment upon those who have brought harm upon the church. The lamb doesn't forget. At the end, and see, this is where even we have to allow for a time gap between that fifth seal and that sixth seal, because at the end of the fifth seal, Jesus says it's not time yet, and then all of a sudden in chapter 12, it seems like it is time, because it says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is where you almost, you just almost have to see this as cyclical, because it seems like the end of the world right here, and then chapter 7, it's not the end of the world. And, and, and we kind of start back over. Chapter 8, here, it seems like this is the end of the world. Jesus is coming back because then it says in verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Here's the hope is that those martyrs are crying out, when will this happen? And then we are told it will happen. It will eventually happen when Jesus brings judgment. The lamb does not forget. He will bring judgment upon every type of person in the end. Right? There, there, there's, there's no segregation here. There's no, uh, there's no prejudice here as to who gets this judgment. It says that everyone, the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave, free, all of them hide themselves. And see, this, this is a picture of their lack of repentance. Jesus is coming. He's coming to destroy. And remember the picture that we have in the Old Testament when Israel is marching through the promised land and they are there to wipe out the Canaanites? And you've got some of the, some of the people who are trembling and running and fleeing that's what Rahab says. She says, hey, your, your, uh, your reputation precedes you. We know why you are here and we are trembling and we are fearful and people are scared to death. And what is she doing? She says, take me to your king. 
Take me to your God. I want to be in on the destruction. Right? Rahab could have ran and fled, but no, she runs to him. She doesn't hide. She runs to the God of Israel and says, take me, please. Take me, please. Here, these people, God shows up in all of his wrath, and what are they doing? Hiding like Adam and Eve in their sin. Hey, don't, don't, bring, don't be wrathful towards us. Protect us. Hide us from this. They could run to him in repentance, but they continue to hide and cling to their sin in the darkness. Lamb doesn't forget those that reject him and harm his church. Lastly, number eight, we're to find comfort and hope in the revelation of the known truths. As we approach chapter six and really try to get into the text, trying to ask the right questions, we want to find comfort and hope in the truths that we can know. He is revealing this information so that when we see the intensification of evil at work around us, we don't lose heart. Imagine if we didn't have chapter 6 and we're living during this time. We could easily start asking questions like, where is Jesus? Has Jesus' power failed? Like, what's happening here? But Jesus gives us the answers, right? Jesus answers those questions and says, no, I haven't lost control. What you're seeing around you only gets its authority from me. I have all the authority. All this stuff is submitted to me. If we ever live in a time where people in our church start dying because they're Christians, we don't have to question it and wonder why is Jesus not stepping in and stopping this? The answer has been given to us because more of us are supposed to die before he will. We've been given important answers in anticipation of questions that we might would ask during this time. And we need to cling to those truths and hang on to them tightly for the encouragement that God intends them to be for us. For our kids, we find hope in what Jesus has told us. Which brings us to our application. When we struggle to see God's purpose in events, will we remain content with his character? I want to draw your attention back to that fifth seal because I love what is said by these martyrs. These martyrs are questioning Jesus, but doing so with the utmost respect. Look what they say. It says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. This isn't the Christian that you hear about who goes through difficult times and starts to question God's goodness and starts to get angry at God and frustrated at God. We've known people like that. And we're not judging people like that, but what we're saying is these aren't the same people. These aren't people who are frustrated and mad at how God's doing things. These people are crying out and saying, God, you're sovereign. You are in control. You are holy. You are right. You are just. It's because of those things that I can even come to you and ask this type of question. When we find ourselves in situations and we're having a hard time seeing God's purpose. And we may never get answers to it. I mean, over the last several years, we've we've, we've prayed about things. We've prayed about sicknesses. We've prayed about job losses. We've We've prayed about a bunch of different things. Things that have surprised our families here or friends of, of people within our church. And we don't always get answers to why God is doing those things. 
And it's during those times when, when we don't understand God's purposes, because these guys are in heaven in the glory of Jesus, and they're still asking questions. When are you going to do this? Like, why haven't you done this already? We may not get answers to those questions when we're going through those difficult situations, but what we have to do to carry us through that is to remember the character of God and be content with that character. That's what they're demonstrating here. They're saying, hey, you're sovereign, you're in control, you're holy, you're true. Like, we're not, we're not questioning that, we're not doubting that. And that's what sustains us through times of uncertainty as well. Whether we live to the end times and see some of this stuff unfold, or whether we just see some of it on a smaller scale right now, where we go through difficult times, we don't get answers all the times that we want. We've been given answers that we need, though that we serve a sovereign God who has all authority, who has good plans and purposes in place for his children. And so while we may not understand the why he's doing certain things, we can certainly trust that he knows the answers and has good purposes for it. We'll continue to unpack chapter six next week um, for our family worship question this week. And we're just gonna have one. What are some key character traits of God? This is just a small thing right here. But what are some key character traits of God we should remember during times we don't understand him? For our families, especially with young kids, this is a great time to to reinforce some of those character traits of God that we know to be true from other passages of Scripture that are certainly important for us to cling to and hold to when we go through difficult times. When we're doubting God and what he's up to, we cling to his character, which helps sustain us during those times. Let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning and, and we're anxious and, and we are anticipating learning much about you and your plans as we get into chapter six next week of Revelation. Father, we approach it in, in humility. We want to approach it, approach it cautiously, knowing that, that we can't possibly answer all the questions that we're going to have from a curiosity standpoint. But God, I pray that you'd give me wisdom to guide our church into asking the right questions so that we can connect the answers that you've given to us to the questions that we need to be asking. God, we know that the events that are described here in Revelation are coming at some point, whether they're happening right now or whether they're happening in the distant future. We know they're coming, and we know that you desire for your church to be ready and prepared to endure those events. And so, God, we're excited to to continue this study, to continue reading and understanding this letter, this revelation. God, give us wisdom to comprehend, to be content when you haven't answered questions, to be gracious and thankful for those that you have answered. Father, we thank you for the character that you've revealed about yourself. You haven't kept that veiled. You haven't kept that hidden. You remind us constantly in Scripture of your promises and how you keep your promises. You've reminded us today that you possess all authority. That the boss that fires us tomorrow doesn't have authority over our life. The authority that you've given him to control his personnel comes from you and not from himself. God, for loved ones that that we love dearly, that may die in the coming weeks, in the coming years. The authority that death has belongs to you. 
We thank you that you own the keys to death and Hades, that you control everything that takes place. God, I pray that we would find the great hope and encouragement that's offered to us by that knowledge. That nothing happens that you don't allow or permit to happen. And it's okay for us to feel that something needs to change. Just like these martyrs in heaven say, this can't go on. This can't continue like this. God, we're thankful that you reveal to us that you agree with that notion, that you agree with that feeling, that evil can't be left unchecked indefinitely. And so, Father, we grieve when evil happens around us. Father, help us to take comfort in the fact that it will not continue forever. That you're the sovereign king, that you're the lion lamb who will initiate these events in your timing. We praise you. We thank you for that. Continue to grow us up in our faith so that as we face these things, we endure to the very end. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.